The work of being a patient with multiple chronic conditions isn't easy. The medications alone can be dizzying. The popularity of pill organizers is perhaps the most obvious way society recognizes. There's a lot that needs to be sorted out and kept track of. But as helpful as this item is, it's just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on for most patients and families whose lives can sometimes be dictated by chronic illness to the point where they either rebel against or ignore medical advice or try to split the difference between being a really good patient and real life. So what is this real life, this context that providers sometimes don't see or don't factor in? What are concrete ways to determine with patients treatment plans that provide the most benefit and that cause the least disruption? We're substituting what could you manage for what should you manage on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Minimally disruptive medicine may not roll off the tongue just yet, but I hope you'll be talking and thinking more about this approach after today's WIHI. So let me now provide some brief introductions and a reminder there are longer bios on the WIHI pages of IHI.org. So both our guests have traveled to IHI for the day from Rochester, Minnesota, Minnesota, which doesn't happen all the time, and they've been here meeting with staff and to be with us here live in the studio. Victor Montori is a diabetologist, and did I hear you also today refer to yourself as an endocrinologist, is that correct? Correct. Okay, and health services researcher. He's the lead investigator of the Knowledge and Evaluation Research Unit and a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So welcome, Victor. Thanks, Madge. Victor brought along his colleague, Neele Shah, also a health services researcher in the Division of Healthcare Policy and Research at Mayo Clinic. Neele teaches at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and is engaged in a number of additional research activities. Welcome, Neele. Thanks, Madge. So uh, we're thrilled that we have uh, this uh, group today with us uh, in the studio, and uh, we're thrilled of your interest in the show. Uh, Close to 600 of you are already getting on board board. And uh, those of you who are just joining, uh, welcome. Uh, we're going to really walk you through, I think, some really, really interesting new approaches to uh, thinking about chronic illness. Um, and I'd like to begin by all of you. Um, oh, Indianapolis here. Okay, Karen, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> um, it's always great to know where people are from. All right. So sometimes I start the program with a poll, and sometimes I invite you all to chat in. So uh, step up to your uh, keyboards here for just a moment. Uh, we have a question I want you to uh, just answer as uh, well as you can uh, for just a minute or two, and then I'll uh, turn it over to our guests as well. Here's the question for you. If you could change one thing in your interactions or discussions with patients with a major chronic condition or perhaps a patient with multiple chronic conditions, what would it be? If you could change one thing about what that interaction uh, is all about, and I want to flip that around and say thinking of yourself as a patient, perhaps, what would you change about that interaction? Since uh, some of you may be joining today identifying as a patient and because so many of us are patients at some point. So we're going to look for your replies um, and uh, don't be shy. Um, here comes the question and here comes some of the answers. And I just want to remind everybody um, that the chat is always available to you at the end of the program uh, in addition to uh, being something you can participate in during the show. So, uh, Victor and Nile, um, hopefully you're seeing this along with me, holistic approach, uh, not ha- to have to limit uh, things, uh, improve confidence, um, more time for behavioral changes. Um, I've got to see if I can read and scroll. The richer, woo, it's coming fast. All right, maybe I should try and not walk and chew gum at the same time here. Um, 
make sure there's meaningful referrals for people with depression, close the loop for care coordination, not so rushed, time to contemplate things, ask the patient for their, where did that go? Oh, ideas about the key role and what they think would work for them. Ooh, music to your ears, uh, doctors, right? More time for dialogue. Uh, Stop referring to the condition as chronic. It makes the condition feel unbeatable and perhaps unmanageable. That's really interesting. Um, All right. Well, keep it coming. Uh, Shared decision-making. Thank you. All right. So, look, you've got a lot of ideas here, which is just fantastic. So that couldn't be more of a learning community uh, uh, that we're uh, in the midst of right now. Um, Okay. We'll uh, keep this open for just another minute or two, John, and then uh, we'll open up the chat when we get to discussion. All right. I'm going to turn to uh, uh, Victor. We'll start with you and then Nile. Um, this is just quick, so uh, I don't know any reactions to what you're seeing here. And then I wanted each of you to answer the question, perhaps from your vantage point, if you could change one way in which the healthcare system as a whole views patients with, we're still using this term, I guess, for the next hour anyway, chronic condition, um, what would it be? Um, well, first of all, thanks for the invitation and uh, th- thanks for the opportunity to interact with so many uh, uh, folks concerned about how to deliver best care. Um, by looking at this um, uh, avalanche of, uh, of responses, uh, there are a few themes that come up uh, just by looking at them, and it has to do with uh, the patient, the patient uh, context, uh, the patient preferences, and uh, and then a bunch of things related to how we interact with the patient and what happens during that interaction. And um, and I think during this, uh, this time together, we should begin to redefine or perhaps begin to start, begin to ignore some of the boundaries that we've traditionally placed between where we interact, how we interact, who interacts, and, and, and begin to... Th- Think about the patient as uh, as the center of healthcare. And one theme that I think Neely and I will have going through our remarks that we may not get to state again, but are, are intrinsic to what we are going to be saying, is the fact that healthcare is corrupt, uh, not because of our uh, of we, our intention, but it's in, it's corrupt in that its mission seems to be less about furthering the health uh, of patients, but it it seems to be more about furthering itself. Um, It's very difficult otherwise to understand why healthcare is an expanding sector of the economy, when in fact, if it was successful, it would be a shrinking sector of the economy. Thank you. Victor Montori. Nile. Yeah, so I I think the other aspect that's coming across in these responses is more from the system perspective, so improving care coordination with the patient at the center. And there, I think, uh, is key approaches beyond what's currently being done in the context of patient-centered medical homes or accountable care organizations. It would be incredibly valuable to sort of think, how do you improve, uh, innovate around this care coordination? So, for example, for people with multiple conditions, can you have... Uh, annual visit where all of their conditions can be um, discussed, uh, um, identified, and a plan for the next year be developed, for example. Um, And something as simple as can all their refills for all their medications be coordinated? So these are very much more from the system side issues, uh, but that would be very valuable for patients with multiple conditions. Okay, thank you. And perhaps the other thing that I, I got to see as it was flashing through is the notion that Patients with chronic conditions, yeah, these are insurmountable conditions, to tell you the truth in many cases, and they're not going to be solved, but people can learn to live with them. But one of the things that we need to understand is by the fact that patients have had these conditions for a number of years, and, you know, often they, their voice as experts that collaborate with other experts to make decisions together needs to be uh, brought up. And I think it was, her name was Amber, I think was uh, pointing out that shared decision-making may be one of those approaches that could be very different from the way in which things are done today. And I, I, I want, to, want to pick on that, and I think that is, in fact, true. If we can give patients voice and make them active participants in their care, particularly when they're expert patients, I think we may end up with a healthcare that is more about them than about itself. Okay, great. Um, all right, so we're all 
off to a good start, and uh, maybe we'll close off the chat right now until we um, go back to discussion. And uh, please don't take that the wrong way. Uh, we've found out from some participants when we're trying to get through a certain amount of material, maybe in the first uh, 20 minutes or so, sometimes having all this stuff uh, roll down at the same time uh, can be a bit confusing. But we'll, we'll uh, open things up in just a moment. I love all the content that people uh, already uh, shot this way. Uh, very germane. So we've started to allude to it. So, Victor, I'm going back to you. But let's let's talk a little bit about what problem or problems are we trying to address. Implicit in these comments and uh, already in some of your remarks uh, and the fact that we're having this discussion at all is that we've, we've got some real problems. And some of it, I, I believe what I'm learning is that there's a whole reality on the other side of uh, <laughs> the discussion here of, of life uh, and uh, – uh, what it really means to be a patient partnering uh, with a provider in a chronic condition. So I think the first thing to recognize is that patients um, have different uh, jobs. Um, many of them are full-time people uh, beyond being patients. You know, so they are parents, they are spouses, they are they are teachers, coaches. They they show up to um, their actual paying jobs. Uh, they they need to comfort friends. Uh, they. They have multiple jobs, and on top of that, they have this job of being a patient. The job of being a patient should be, ideally, the smallest job of all, because the rest of this, those jobs is what we would describe as life, right? But the job of being a patient is something that interrupts life, disrupts life. It gets in the way. Uh, people have estimated, for instance, for patients with diabetes, that if, if patients were to do everything we asked them to do to be a good patient with diabetes, it will be like a part-time job. It will be, you know, two hours in the day. Um, of course, patients don't spend two hours in the day doing it, and when they show up in my office, I tell them, why? how come you haven't done everything I told you to do? But of course, <laughs> they can't, right? They don't have any time. Right. So, so, so um, uh, we need to recognize that, that what we need to, uh, that, that that is a problem, that even the most, um, uh, the best patient, if you want to describe it like that, the one that follows every piece of instruction, even then, if their if their life is complex, they won't have any place, no time or effort to fit all these things, and eventually they'll have to prioritize. And if clinicians are not engaged in prioritizing with the patient what needs to happen, what we end up the result of the patient's prioritization may be very different from the expectation of the clinician, and the clinician may end up labeling this patient a non-compliant or non-adherent. Um, that needs to change. Because for these patients, their relationship with their clinician is essential. Their partnership with the clinician is essential to achieve good outcomes. So we need to come up with a new form of medicine, one that is mindful of the work of being a patient, one that is mindful of the context of the patient and the, the context the rest of their life, one that is able to then prioritize what everything needs to be done based on the patient's values and preferences. There's no way a clinician can figure out the patient values and preferences without engaging the patient. So we need to figure out how to bring that all together such that the end result is a, a, a health care that it fits the context of the patient, uh, is responsive to patient goals and values, and is, uh, is also corresponding to the best available research evidence. So that we refer to as minimally disruptive medicine, a medicine that has the smallest possible footprint on people's lives while achieving patient goals. Okay. Um, one of the things, uh, thank you, Victor, and one of the things that, um, you know, we have this one hour together and we're going to perhaps be focusing more on context and sort of the burden and the work of, of being a chronically ill patient, but a very big piece Piece of what you and Nile are working on is also um, to what extent then patients are being loaded up with treatments that may or may not be beneficial um, so that there's uh, a kind of an unreality both to what's being prescribed and maybe not always something beneficial. So could you just mention that very, very briefly, sort of where does that sort of layer in here? Um, in medicine today, there's a big emphasis on um, and, uh, on clinical practice guidelines and quality improvement where 
um, organizations want to be highly reliable in their ability to de- uh, get to patients the care they need and uh, the care they need according to the best available research evidence and to do it with high reliability. Um, as patients experience that care, uh, it may be that it is too much because a patient with a single condition, you can apply the guideline and you're probably going to get the balance of risk and benefit that those who wrote the guideline imagine will take place. But when you have multiple chronic conditions, these guidelines start interacting with each other. And as the treatments start adding to each other, they start interacting, they start uh, having unintended consequences, and the chance for harm on these patients goes up and may exceed the expected benefit. So even if the patient were to stick to all that is recommended, they may end up being harmed. there are surveys that indicate that clinicians today find uh, or endorse the notion that their patients are being overtreated to an extent that it exceeds what they would like to see happen with their own patients. So, and patients often, when they come see me, they say, "Do I really need to take these 17 medications? Are there are there some medicines that I could cut out?" And and. Um, so there's an overall sense that some of these patients get too much. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it is an unintended consequence of evidence-based medicine, clinical practice guidance, and quality improvement that sometimes patients are being asked to do more than they can handle without paying attention at the unintended consequences of piling up on them. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, thanks, everybody. Uh, there are a little over 700 of you are with us today, and, and we really welcome you to this discussion with Victor Montori and Nile Shah. Nile, talk about the medication piece of this in particular, um, because that's also an area um, rife for error. And, you know, we're, we're talking about burden, but also, um, you know, all potential risks as well. So how is perhaps this blind spot of not understanding context whatever. Also, how does that lead to perhaps a lot of um, loading up with medications and then we get the boomerang of so-called non-compliance? Right. Um, So typically, people with multiple conditions are on 10 or more medications um, and coming from multiple different prescribers. And there's constant medication changes to meet these different targets that Victor talked about with different diseases to follow different guidelines. So there's constant changes. These medications have have to be taken multiple times a day. So at some point, um, as we'll talk about a bit more about it, the patient's um, workload for managing their medications um, is greater than the capacity they have in managing their medications. In that realm, at that point, they sort of decide without really much thought as to, well, I'm just not going to do take some of these medications. Um, and this capacity may be from a number of different issues, such as social support to uh, the financial issues. So a number of things can uh, drive a patient to decide to not take medications. But oftentimes these decisions are sort of made without a clinician being involved in that uh, discussion. Uh, so one of the ways to get started with uh, is to, right at the beginning when a medication is being prescribed, engage the patient in that discussion. So as Victor mentioned early on, the issue of shared decision-making. So we've developed and tested a number of tools to engage patients in decision-making about medications that they would be possibly prescribed, such that they're engaged, they have a say in what medication they want to go on early on. Now, as patients pile up medications, there's increasingly many of these uh, programs, and and many of the participants here probably have a lot of these programs, uh, like the medication therapy management programs, where pharmacists can actually review the different medications that the patients may be on, help in terms of better coordinating, you know, scheduling so they can take it fewer times a day, possibly getting rid of medications that may not be of benefit to the patient and so forth. Um, so I think there's many different ways I think the, the medication management can improve significantly for patients. Okay, thanks, Nile. So um, I flashed up here um, one of these uh, tools, um, and uh, that's just uh, just a small sample, I think, of the stuff that, uh, Victor, you and Nile and your colleagues are working on. On. So describe the sort of uh, bolus of solutions that you're, you're trying uh, to bring, bring into the fore here. Yeah. I, I think maybe instead of describing what we can yeah. do is we can actually have 730 participants <laughs> participate in shared decision-making about statins as if, it, as if they were the patient that's represented in this particular tool. Okay. So, oh, Whoops. the uh, – <laughs> 
this particular tool is yeah. uh, is to reflect a, a patient uh, with diabetes who has a bit of hypertension and uh, maybe it's a man in his uh, 50s or early 60s and when you compute this person's uh, cardiovascular risk of heart attack in the next 10 years it comes out at 20% and you can see that depicted in the first graph and the way we use this with patients is we say imagine you're, you're, uh, uh, there's 100 patients like you that are followed over 10 years and what we would see it, without any treatment is that 80 of those patients who are depicted in green here um, will not, these are patients like you, over the next 10 years will not have a heart attack. And 20 patients depicted in red here over the next 10 years, which will be tomorrow or in a week or in three months, in three years or in 10 years, and over that period of time, will 20 of them will have a heart attack. And there is no way for me as your doctor to know if you're one of the green ones or one of the red ones. If we were to start a cholesterol medicine, a statin today, what will happen over those 10 years to 100 people just like you? Well, 80 people in green will not have a heart attack. Uh, 15 in red, this is, we're looking at the panel underneath, 15 people in red will have a heart attack despite taking the medicine regularly. And five people out of the 100, actually, that were destined to have a heart attack will avoid that heart attack by virtue of taking this medicine. In other words, out of 100 people, 95 will have their outcome unchanged by taking the medicine. Five will avoid a heart attack by taking the medicine. So this now 732 participants, as you consider the scenario I've just presented, perhaps you may be able to say either to yourself or through this chat mechanism, you may be able to say, how many of you will be interested in taking a statin? Now, what is interesting about, and so I don't, do, can, do we, do we uh, invite them to do that? Can we, oh, okay, sure, we can open up the chat. I'm sorry, yeah. uh, I was uh, communicating here with John. Uh, what, what's the question? So, so the yeah. question is, would yeah. you take a statin if this was your situation? Okay, so all we, right. So we've never done shared decision making <laughs> over chat, but. Uh, <laughs> we can do it uh, anytime. We're, 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 we're changing the rule. We're, okay, uh, so we're getting we're having, some answers already. All right, so, okay, let's. Let's see. Uh, no. So now, what, well, as you're doing this, yeah. I, I want folks to reflect um, that, the, again, the scenario is that this you are, I mean, I apologize for the ladies, but you're a man that is in, you know, kind of middle-aged, older, with diabetes, and you have a risk of heart attacks at 20%. So, so far, you know, it's a small sample. Um, uh, yeah. So far, we're getting... <laughs> Uh, we're getting a, a conditional yes, um, a bunch of no's, and I, I, I want to point out that in calculating the cardiovascular risk, the LDL cholesterol was 120. Again, these are all patients with diabetes, and you are one. You are this patient, and you are deciding. We are getting a lot of uh, a lot of answers from to uh, to host privately. So uh, if you could just make sure you address all your uh, answers to all participants, and that way we can all see. Thanks. Right. Yes. Exactly. This way we'll, you'll get right into the shared decision making. Uh, yeah. You're in the office with all of us here. So so, it, it, so yeah. from what was coming uh, through, I, I, I don't. It's very difficult to <laughs> aggregate mentally. Uh, some of them need more time to decide. We have uh, some yeses. I would say uh, there's maybe between 10 and 20 percent of yeses, and then there's a majority. If I, if, I, if I'm doing justice to this of no's. Now, let me reflect uh, with you briefly that the guidelines indicate that every patient with diabetes must take a statin. So all of you who are interested in, in, uh, in, in guideline implementation and quality improvement of castigated clinicians for not giving the statin to the patient or castigated patients for deciding not to take a statin and said no to this, you may want to, ref you may want to modify your previous position. Uh, but this is the difference yeah, between right. what the evidence says you need and what you, when you consider the issues you want. Some of you noticed, some of you have said no without me presenting the potential harms of statins. Now, I suspect that some of you may have a sense of what those could be, and I have not presented the cost of statins. And in fact, in the tool, they're written there, they're in small, they're, they're in, uh, less represented than in the benefits. And some people have suggested that we have a pro-statin approach because we're presenting the benefit with big, fancy colors. And the fact that the majority of you said no indicates to me that you didn't know the cost or the harms associated with statin. The benefit just did 
didn't impress you as sufficient to put a pill in your mouth every day. And we find that when we show this to patients, about 20% or 30% will say, yes, I'm interested in this medicine. And the rest are interested in other ways of improving their cardiovascular outcomes. And if you are a patient-centered clinician, you will basically support the patient's decision, but you will be placing yourself at odds with existing guidelines. Wow, so great. So uh, Victor really, uh, this is great. He's helping to design uh, this program uh, with all of you and and, and with me uh, uh, in in real time. So I guess my question is, is this kind of shared decision-making, is this writ large what we're talking about with both shared decision-making and in the family of what you mean by minimally disruptive medicine? Well, I think to to Neil's point, you know, as people accumulate medicines in a mindless way, I, I don't mean to be insulted by that, but I mean, if people are into, okay, so you have diabetes, we must, we, we need to start an aspirin, we need to start a statin, um, we may need to actually add another cholesterol-lowering drug because we need that to get that LDL under 100, um, uh, we need to, um, uh, you have depression, we may need to add an antidepressant, and you have hypertension, and because you have diabetes and hypertension, we may need to use an ACE inhibitor, and you know, very quickly, a patient with just diabetes, with common comorbidities, We'll, we'll see the number of medications added. Um, because you have all these problems, you want to see a dietitian, you want to see um, a psychiatrist, you may want to see an hypertension specialist, a nephrologist, uh, you may want to have follow with a cardiologist, you may need to have electrocardiogram. Who knows, right? I mean, these medicines have this, and, and these management approaches have these ways of mushrooming. I think at the, the, the moment the patient starts getting engaged uh, in this conversation and gets a practiced in in the art of ask, asking, what are my options? Which several of your listeners have repeatedly mm-hmm. asked. Wait a minute, are these, is this the only option? Are there more options? So can we get patients to ask, what are my options? What are the pros and cons associated with each of those options? And how likely are those pros and cons? If we can get patients to, to, to challenge us to answer, and then we can get, can we support clinicians in being able to answer those questions without having to make the stuff up in their heads? Uh, we, we will be moving forward. So to that extent, these tools help the clinicians answer those questions and begin to create an expectation on the part of patients and clinicians that these discussions are necessary if we're going to treat uh, chronic disease in a patient-centered way. Thank you so much, and thanks for everybody who's contributing. So, Nile, what do we know? Uh, Victor's alluding to this a bit, but what do we know about the uptake? Uh, is this now being used uh, throughout Mayo? Are we seeing that uh, to the extent that you're, you've been able to bring this stuff forward, uh, that patients and clinicians uh, are uh, deriving some benefit from this. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of our work around shared decision-making and these tools have been done in trials and testing the effect of these tools both on um, patient knowledge about their options as well as um, adherence to their treatment. Um, So far, we've tested these tools in over 50 different primary care clinics. Um, Over 200 different clinicians have tried these tools in some form or another. And some of these tools are based uh, our uh, original work, like the statin tool that uh, Victor brought up. That is embedded within the Mayo electronic medical record. And uh, clinicians, we haven't done active dissemination, but over there have been over 2,000 uses in the last few months that it's been live. So, and, and a lot of these tools are now available on the web as well for people to use anytime they want. So uh, one of the things we're working on now is as we get more evidence that these tools work, how do we get the knowledge out to a broader set of participants? How do we get... Um, people to be interested in using it or provide us feedback based on their uses of how this can be enhanced further. One of your listeners asked the question, well, that's kind of nice, but clinicians don't have time to use tools like this in a 12-minute consultation. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, Neely and I and our team at the care unit at Mayo Clinic have been doing clinical trials with partners in a specialty setting, primary care setting, um, rural, suburban, and um, inner city settings, uh, hospital emergency departments. So across the whole range of healthcare delivery, traditional healthcare delivery sites, shared decision-making tools like the ones we've shown have been uh, feasible. Um, When we looked at how much more time they add to consultations, the average is, I would say, it's about 10% of the duration of the consultation. So anywhere between two to three and a half more minutes are spent in having this discussion. What we cannot uh, say with confidence is whether those two to three additional minutes are worth the effort. 
in terms of things like uh, improved adherence to therapy or re reduce uh, problems in follow-up. But what we can say from watching video recording of these encounters, which we have done in all of our studies, is that there, the, the, there are things as subtle as the joy of practice for the clinician, the ability to have conversations they want to have, but now they can have them with confidence, the engagement of the patient, which is uh, which is a positive thing for chronic disease that it, that happens obviously and visibly during the consultation, and the extent to which um, many low-risk patients are able to walk away without medicine that they don't want but guidelines say that perhaps they need. Um, the fact that people are able to get the treatment that they would get if they knew what the doctor su supposedly knows, the fact that there is that uh, transparency and opportunity for patients to get the, tr the, the care they, they need and want, uh, it may be sufficient to justify that extended period of time. Okay. Uh, already I see. Thank you so much, uh, Victor, and I already see some interesting questions, and we're going to go to uh, your questions and comments for real, um, all of them, in just a second or as many as we can get to. Um, I guess I just wanted to, maybe I'll ask this of Nile, uh, just so there's some clarity, um, since shared decision-making gets used all over the place uh, right now, um, my question would be some of what you're, you are talking about. What's the biggest difference between what you are working on right now and perhaps uh, the shared decision-making that's uh, kind of come forward to date? Um, yeah, there's, uh, I think, many different models in engaging in shared decision-making. For example, um, there's DVDs and videos that uh, can be sent to patients to review prior to an encounter. Um, there's websites or web videos that patients can review prior to an encounter or review them with health coaches within a clinic, uh, clinical setting. Our goal um, has been to embed these tools within the clinical encounter, within the discussion that it takes, and really the underlying um, um, phrase that we've used around these tools is to create a conversation around the decision that the patient needs to make. Um, now, interestingly, we've tried in some of these settings where we've said, well, the clinicians are really busy and they don't have time and let's, uh, let's have someone else administer the tool and have the discussion with the clinician, such as a diabetes educator for diabetes medications. And it turns out when we present these to clinicians, the clinicians are actually interested in doing this themselves. They, from their perspective, this is something very interesting interesting, something novel they'd like to try in their encounter. Um, now, interestingly, as clinicians um, uh, participate in one of our studies with one of the tools, they also then ask, do you have other tools like this that we can embed in the practice? So getting back to the question about the time it takes, once clinicians use it, experience it, they figure they, they don't find it as uh, burdensome as they may imagine it to be before trying it. Okay. Well, that's really uh, terrific and uh, promising. And we're trying to throw up some links here that where people can explore more. Yeah, I was actually there's a question from yeah. Barbara looking for calculators, and I will um, post on the chat okay. a, a link. We are trying that statting tool that I that I, we have flashed. Yeah. There is a beta version that we're testing online. Beta. Okay. Okay. And uh, we will put the link in a few minutes here. Okay. Uh, so that if people in this group can. And actually try it out and give us some feedback, we will be very uh, grateful. And yes, to Barbara, the, um, the calculators are all publicly available, published, and uh, validated. Okay. I'm going to give Victor, um, since we're doing the show uh, in the raw here, um, I'm going to give Victor, Victor the keyboard and the, the little mouse, and I'll, uh, he can uh, uh, type that in for you, um, which will be very helpful. So while Victor's looking that up uh, as we speak here, um, I want to just uh, flash these two other slides. And by the way, I always remember, I, well, I mean, I always try to remember to tell all of you, any of you joining by phone who are not uh, logged into the computer, a reminder that you can email info at IHI.org uh, now or at the end of the show and get all the slides that we share. So I hope you don't feel the least bit uh, left out and can follow along. Show these um, for a second, John, and maybe while Victor's looking some of this stuff up, uh, Nile could just explain. Explain uh, what what some of these depictions are about. Yeah, so these are um, our tools called the the diabetes cards, and specifically to engage patients in decision making. Um, 
around diabetes medications as okay. they need to uh, either start therapy or um, or add medications to their existing therapy. Okay. And it's interesting, the way we started developing these tools was to create sort of what we called the baseball cards initially. For each medication, we provided information about that medication. What we realized quickly is that wasn't what was important to patient. It was the issues around the medications. And so as a result, what we came up with here uh, is what's called uh, issue cards cards here. Yep. Um, and if people want to use this electronically, these we've typically tested as paper version, but electronically it's available at uh, diabetesdecisionaid.mayoclinic.org. I'll put, I'll put that in there. Okay, he'll do that too. Okay. <laughs> Victor's now hosting the show. <laughs> he'll be the person corresponding with all of you. All right, that's great. And this next one, is this focused, um, John, if you could just throw that up, is this all right, a little bit harder uh, to get all the details here, but is this focused on anti presence is this one that's right yeah so this is to again um, have uh, discussions around medications for uh, for depression okay all right so very very similar things uh, and people can interact with those and uh, Victor put those you're gonna put in that uh, link as well yeah so that yeah the, the first link I put in is the better version of the statin choice decision aid online okay. uh, you need a, a recent browser so if you're using Internet Explorer 8 or earlier you have some Difficulties eight or later is well is good. Chrome, Firefox, Safari work well. You can also work on this one on the iPad. It works well there. The second link is the Diabetes Decision Aid, which is the cards again an electronic interactive format. Uh, that one uh, has the same the same expectations in terms of the browser, but it has to do is a completely different format. It has to do with choosing your 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 your, uh, your best diabetes medicine. All right, very good. And and some people uh, wonder about why is it that we're only talking about medicines and why are we not talking about uh, lifestyle issues, uh, uh, alternative uh, approaches uh, to care. And one thing that we have to be careful when we're doing this work is that you got to choose your battles. And um, I don't have a lot of trouble with people choosing the wrong exercise or choosing the wrong diet to a great extent. Uh, and they're going to hear there's a lot of, of noise a lot of, about this, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey. And the evidence supporting one diet being superior to the other is usually very weak. Um, so um, and there it seems to me that behavioral modification approaches, nudges, um, motivational interviewing, all sorts of things that, that uh, clinicians or healthcare professionals do uh, to, and, uh, to assist patients have limited value but are worth it trying. Probably the biggest value there is to fundamentally change the context in which people live, uh, you know, the, the, how safe is the neighborhood, how, how, uh, how good is the access to uh, fruits and vegetables and fresh food and, uh, and how how, how much um, uh, health education kids get in school and, and can influence their parents. Those seem to be, I think, more potentially more, very, very exciting. Uh, so we focus on medicines because there's a lot of harm being done there, because there's a lot of cost being, a lot of money being spent there, and there's and 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 we think that this will be a low-lying fruit for us. And this will be a place where patients can do have a choice, do have a, do have a voice. We just need to give it to them, and there will be significant changes in the way they they experience healthcare. Great, thank you, and thank uh, so thanks to Victor and. Now, as we maybe, you know, gin up more of your comments and questions, all of you, you're already very, very active participants, and we're very grateful for that. Now, I see a comment here. So, uh, John, uh, maybe maybe everyone knows about chatting, but just to remind everybody uh, how to take part. Yeah, just uh, really quickly to uh, remind you, uh, please address um, the drop-down box, all participants, and that way everybody in the chat will be able to see you, and everybody in this room will be able to see uh, the questions and comments that you're asking. All right. Thank you, John. So I see one up here near and dear to my heart. I hope you have a tool for helping patients decide to go for colonoscopies. Now, that's an interesting comment, um, and I guess I want to ask our guests here to sort of put on their uh, kind of research and minimally disruptive hats here and about how you would respond to that. Um, IHI actually has been engaged for the last year or so in kind of an interesting study about uh, looking at the risks, benefits, and also other options to colonoscopies. Could be um, under a, a study a project name called Gut Check, uh, trying to better educate people just to get colon cancer screening. Period, not necessarily only colonoscopy. So, how do you respond, I guess, to that comment? Yeah, I think there's a, there are a number of ways to 
think about it. One yeah. is, yes, we wanted to do one early on, maybe three years ago or so. We thought about doing one. Um, our colleague that was engaged in doing this uh, rejected the notion of presenting to patients the possibility of no colonoscopy or no colon evaluation. And uh, we felt that it was necessary to, comp to give patients the, the option of not getting any screen. So it was in it's been interesting in screening and shared decision-making that those who are public health-minded uh, find it very difficult to offer choice to patients because patients may choose. In fact, the way the question was asked was how do you get them to their colonoscopy, right? And so, so if you think that patients must get these things, don't hide it as a choice. Don't, don't hide behind the choice. Uh, a surgeon, uh, uh, you know, is a surgeon that, that was said that, that he always did a shared decision-making, which for him was he talks to the patient until the patient agrees. Um, that, that, that is not what we're talking about. Uh, in general, we believe that screening procedures have burdens, particularly as patients get, get older, and we have to be mindful of the, the re reduced value they have as patients get older, particularly for colon cancer screening. A colleague of ours, Carmen Lewis from University of North Carolina, has done a lot of work in this area to try to figure out uh, how do you get appropriate amount of screening in folks as people get older. And folks from, uh, from uh, University of California and San Francisco have developed uh, work on uh, life expectancy calculators that begin to provide some uh, more objective assessment of, you know, if some of these cancers take 10, 15 years, 20 years to develop, um, when, when should you uh, quit doing these things? And I think when you start quitting doing some of the, some of the screening uh, tests, you will be reducing some of the burden of health care on some of these folks. But through a period of, important period of life, uh, some screening procedures are worthwhile having, and, 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 and you just need to make sure that they're conveniently delivered so that they will not be overly burdensome on folks. Is that Neela? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I agree. I think it's uh, the the biggest trade-off with that is using shared decision making to increase colonoscopy rates or colon cancer screening rates, and that may not always be the case. Okay. You know, uh, to both of you, uh, when um, Victor Vontori spoke at an IHI um, Office Practice Summit, International Summit in March, I recall um, you spoke of these issues, and somebody went to the microphone from the audience. And um, as I recall, uh, she was really worried in some ways about uh, in this environment of shared decision-making and weighing things and taking in all these factors into account about burden, et cetera, uh, that she may be still not treating her patient well and in some sense leaving that patient at risk for something and violating some other almost codes of ethics, et cetera, et cetera. I can't remember what your answer was, but I do remember this person uh, – saying you're not suggesting that we don't give the treatment that we think we should be giving. Um, what? Both of you maybe uh, jump into that. Yeah, two, two things about it. Um, I, I, we practice what we're preaching here, okay? So, so I'm a practicing clinician. I see patients, and, uh, and, and I te teach uh, trainees uh, in my specialty. And we sometimes leave the, leave the room with a patient that we've made a decision not to give something that as we went into the room thought was the best approach. But, and we, ha we leave the room with a sense of, oh, did we get it right? You know, and there's a little angst, you know, that, that, that follows that. Um, and sometimes my trainees will verbalize that. And my response to that is I'd rather feel the angst of, is this the right thing for this patient, than feel completely confident that we just follow the guideline to the T, even though it was the wrong thing for this patient, right? So there, there's a bit of a trade-off there. The second thing is that these tools are designed for use with the patient during the consultation. These are not tools that the patient um, reviews on their own. They make a decision that we are informed of, and then we are, we are left to passively observe the patient, you know, sort of choose the wrong path. If we are offering choice, it's because we believe there are multiple ways of proceeding, that these ways have pros and cons, and there's no clear winner. If we believe that for this patient there's a clear winner, our professional responsibility is to identify that and share that with the patient. Shared decision-making does not mean that the, the clinician plays dead. Shared decision-making means there are two experts in the room. They're experts about different things. And they are going to engage in a conversation. They're going to share information. They're going to deliberate about the options. And they're going to make a decision both are happy to live with. There will be conflicts. There will be situations where the patient wants to do one thing and the clinician thinks it's the wrong thing. And out of that conflict, hopefully, 
light will emerge, not just heat, but there will be light. Um, some conflicts will never be resolved, and that's when the patient maybe explicitly goes and look for a second opinion. But I'd rather have all that activity yeah. than, the, than the notion that we can go about the clinicians following the guideline and the patient going home and thinking that doctor is crazy and not going to take this prescription. Right, exactly. That's what I think uh, you you spoke of, an act of civil disobedience, uh, right, uh, which can be a way of saying uh, this isn't making any sense to me. Um, yeah. This is not fitting in. Um, a couple interesting questions. First of all, I want to just clarify. People are asking for the depression decision link. That was the slide that I shared. Is that available at the uh, general link, or it's not available yet? We have um, okay. our our, yeah. our group has a policy that all of our tools that have been tested and found to work yep. will be available free of charge to everyone all the time. Okay. So if you go to the websites that we've been providing, there's you you see there's no password, there's no there's no registration. You can just go in and use them, and okay. we want you to use them, and you want we want you to call us or email us and let us know how this is going for you. The depression one is not available yet because it's currently undergoing a randomized trial where we expect to get 300 patients from primary care with depression and who are going to use these tools with their clinician to decide which antidepressant to take if they're choosing to take an antidepressant. Okay. That trial has to date uh, enrolled about, um, last I checked, about uh, it's a third of the way, so a little less than a third of the way. So, so I expect that by the end end of the year, we'll finish recruitment, and if we find that this tool is effective in helping patients make informed choices about antidepressants, we will do the same as we've done with the other tools, which is to publish it online so people can use them, or uh, as we've done with the diabetes one, with a link that we've, we've uh, shared with uh, your, your uh, listeners, yeah. um, uh, we will put it online in, in that way so that patients can use it with clinicians the next day. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, and uh, I hope Hope uh, that's understood, and everybody gets a little bit of a um, with that other with the other slide. That's not the one that I think is up there right now. That's still on diabetes, but uh, at least you get a peek at what some of uh, um, yeah. your, your latest uh, comment yeah. here yeah. Um, uh, talks about from Sarah Hilmerstein talks about Costs. a cost issue, and the, the we have in the diabetes cards and in the depression cards there is a cost card, yeah. um, and uh, uh, that uh, that cost card is uh, turned out to be uh, very helpful to our patients. It's incredibly hard to have because of the difference in uh, co-pays and things like that. But it, it, it provides a sense. Um, it, it, it provides a sense of um, of the di- relative difference in co- out-of-pocket costs that patients may experience. Okay, thank you. And then I'll, I'll just respond to the next question on the rate of uh, adherence to medications when using decision aid versus usual care approach. So, yeah. when we've tested this. Um, um, for bisphosphonates as well as statins, we found improved adherence um, at some level, but it's not consistent. So, for example, our diabetes decision aid did not have improved adherence, uh, mostly because uh, the mostly because uh, the control group had 100% adherence in there, so we couldn't really get any better from there. Um, so the results on the adherence are mixed, but these are based on relatively smaller trials, you know, uh, typically 100 patients to 150 patients. Right now we have larger trials, like Victor mentioned, with depression with 300 patients. We have another one with the diabetes cards, uh, which is um, across the state of Minnesota, which is uh, aiming to enroll 600 patients, and we are about halfway there. So that will give us much better sense of a broader sense of adherence, but we don't, we're trying to learn more about that right now. Thank you. Okay. I'll let Victor uh, kind of respond when you when the uh, the other link that's being shared here. Yeah, uh, is well, that the same thing? Yeah, yeah. It, it may be the same, but it may be that it's there to help um, our own um, execution of the trial. I have to look at that. But again, it's, what is put out there has right. not been fully tested yet. Uh, we're waiting for the results of the trial to, okay. to put the whole thing up. There was a question prior as yep. to whether we have experience using these tools with the geriatric, the geriatric population. Right. Yep. And that we've always heard that uh, this will be all right for young people, but old people People will not be interested in relating to their doctors in the same way. The average age of a participants in our trial is 65. Okay. The maximum age of a patient that's participated in our trial was 95. I think 95. 
92, 95. It's, it's over 90 years old. Um, uh, so we don't, and then we've now looked across all our studies. The outcomes are the same in terms of young and old people, boys and girls. Um, in any way, we've looked at it, uh, education level. The, these tools do not introduce additional disparities. In fact, state, there's a hint that they may reduce existing disparities at baseline. Um, I want to ask a question. Thank you. I want to ask a question that I think relates to some other comments that are in here. So we're in an environment right now of accountable care organizations forming as we speak and uh, more and more practices getting uh, certified or seeking certification as patient-centered medical homes, uh, meeting certain uh, targets uh, in terms of process measures and people doing certain things, patients that is, uh, to show that you're delivering best care is all a part of this. So what what are your thoughts? Uh, this does seem to be a crucial moment uh, in which we start to get some of this right in terms of, uh, you know, what makes for a really good uh, primary care practice and one that deserves to be called patient-centered uh, when a lot of this is in flux right now, including, um, you know, what could come down as some pressure uh, to, to make sure patients have certain things done. Thoughts? So one of the things, that, that's always been a concern. So how does shared decision-making fit in with quality improvement and quality measurement? Um, so far in all the trials and all the clinics that we've participated in, we've not heard any pushback on that front. Um, now on the flip side, on a broader um, perspective, sort of moving forward, how do we um, measure, you know, as there's a payments based on quality and so forth, how do we move forward at, uh, at least internally at our institution, we've talked broadly about this, that we need to start thinking about other measures besides these intermediate process measures such as the lipid levels and so forth, um, which may incorporate patient reported outcomes and um, patient um, perceptions on the delivery of their care uh, more prominently into these measures. Um, maybe, Victor, you can you have something to add to that as well. But I think that that's one of the keys is how do we um, rethink performance measurement yep. and, and incorporate patient-centered measures into that. Great. Yeah, I, I agree. I, the, uh, um, sometimes quality improvement puts clinicians at odds with their patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think these tools bring transparency to that process and give the clinicians the ability to document that this is an informed choice that the patient is making with the clinician. Provides the clinician a little bit of an out, if I may, from from that, if that is necessary. But again, ideally, what we need to do is begin to align the quality improvement, as as Neely was saying, with what we think is the right thing to do, which in our mind is to have patients choose their poison. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go back to questions in just a second. Very, very quickly, I want to make sure I get this in before I forget. Um, so uh, very germane to our discussion today, um, IHI is always trying to work uh, with the likes of our guests here today and others to make care more patient-centered uh, and the patient experience. And uh, IHI is offering a new seminar this October 23-24 entitled The Patient Experience, Improving Safety, Efficiency, and HQ caps through patient-centered care. And uh, you can find the slides up there right now. And um, and somebody's leaning over this patient in the cartoon and saying, when we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. So um, this, of course, is <laughs> the opposite of what we're trying to talk about today, but uh, it does often reflect the starting point uh, for, for many of these programs. More details on IHI.org. Uh, Victor, somebody is asking, have you studied the effect on using tools for a publicly reported measure, does it help reach a community goal or hinder? Yeah, I think we just did. I think yeah. we just answered that in the sense that right. most of the public reporting measures right now yep. have started with what I think was what could be done, which was A1C, LDL, you know, just talk yep. about diabetes. Right. These are things that are easy to, to capture from electronic records. Uh, they're easy to report, uh, easy, quote, you know, to report by the practices. And you can compare practices easy on that. But that, that was all right for, like, generation one of these things. Uh, 
the next generation of these measures and public reporting measures have to be much more patient-centered, and I think we're in that journey. When that happens, I think we're going to see a little bit better alignment. Our tools have not been shown to improve uh, any of these measures, and you wouldn't expect them to. If there was a way where – if you believe that the measures suggest patients are better off and you knew that something will make them better off, you would not offer that as a choice. You will insist that patients will pursue it like we would do now for, say, exercise mm-hmm. or activity, I might say, right? So, so no, I, w- I don't expect health to be better unless there's improved adherence, and we haven't been able yet to show any with, with consistency that patients are more adherent to therapy if they get uh, shared decision-making. Okay, very, very good. Um, I think, uh, well, I'm going to maybe get some final thoughts from you. One more question. We talked about this in prep uh, for today. Um, what about some of the concerns about, um, given that we're talking in a contextual way and we're trying to appreciate and have better empathy for the whole experience of somebody's life, uh, what what do we need in a community uh, that can sort of back all this up? Um, we were talking about maybe service when sometimes services seem to be shrinking. So, so let's let's pull back a little bit. So we, yeah. we've really. Uh, done a deep dive today about shared decision making in that in that way. But we remember we started talking about how do we get the care to fit the values and context of the patient. And so shared decision making is one of those approaches that may allow us to make the healthcare fit the values and preferences. But the context piece is much more complicated. Um, when we are thinking about care coordination or, or uh, the medical home or other interventions that we're now trying to do for, to help patients with chronic conditions, um, most of them continue to be aligned with those disease-centered goals and, that the, and public reported measures or pay-for-performance measures. And I think they, I, we think they miss the mark. And to, in order for those efforts to meet the needs of these patients with multiple chronic conditions, what we need to be looking at is um, going back to this idea that patients have a given capacity to take on the work of being a patient in addition to all the jobs that they have, and that we introduce through healthcare a workload to that patient with that given capacity. And that what we need to do is we need to right-size the workload to the capacity the patient has. So that's one aspect. And so this is where prioritization of care according to patient values is important. What do we do with the capacity, right? So the capacity of a patient to take on the work of being a chronically ill patient comes from their resilience. Uh, things like uh, uh, mindful meditation can help maybe with resilience. How about health literacy? How about uh, financial support? How about social isolation? Um, how about the, the depression and pain? These are all things that reduce capacity to take on the care of, uh, to take on the work of being a patient. So here, the community has a lot of resources that could help such patients. So all of a sudden there is a requirement for these medical homes and other initiatives to connect with community resources and for community resources to not just list their number in the phone book and wait for people that need them to call them, but rather to outreach to the healthcare system and work together to increase the capacity of these patients so that they can take on the, the work of being a chronically ill patient. All right. Thank you very much. I want to get some uh, comments from Anile before we wrap up, but I've uh, I've seen now a um, comment that somebody created a Wordle from, uh, is that something we can share? That's right here. Oh, let's see. Oh, this is what this is. So uh, this is a Wordle based on your initial responses when we asked if you could change one thing uh, about the interaction uh, between patients and providers uh, when dealing with chronic illness. Um, we'll see if we can't uh, even uh, enlarge of it. That, uh, so who created that? That was Richard? That was Richard Toussaint. Okay, Richard, thank you very much. I really, people have been very, very clever and creative uh, on the go here during this program. Well, what, what, I, what, yeah. I, what I rescue out of this wordle is the fact that patient yeah. is the biggest thing, yeah. right? and so that's consistent with what I right. think we're trying to say today, and time, which some people may have immediately assume refer to a barrier, I would assume is exactly what we need to give patients, and uh, particularly time in thinking, how, do we can, how can we bring healthcare back to be about patients and less about itself. Okay. All right. John just made it uh, very, very large. As large as I can make it. And we'll also <laughs> include that with the resources, so you can grab that tomorrow at IHI.org. Right. Thank you very much. We got, actually, we're, we're going to probably need to wrap up, and I don't know if I want to throw this uh, question. Somebody is wondering about people who are in denial, uh, or perhaps, um, you know, um, not uh, ready in some sense, even for the shared decision making, because perhaps there may not be an Acknowledgement. I don't. Uh, I'm not sure we can go down that path, Neela. If you want to uh, say anything about that, I thought maybe we could also wrap up 
up with, uh, gee, some folks, I think this has been a very vibrant community today, and I'm sure people will follow up on the links. Is there anything else that you would recommend that people sort of take away uh, from this discussion? If you went to, who should you talk to tomorrow, you know, uh, if you wanted to begin to alter the status quo right now? Yeah, so one thing at a broader level, we are happy to be available um, and, you know, engage. You know, please contact us via email, um, uh, and we'd be happy to work with others. Um, but but I think there's, um, there's I think, increasing um, interest in this area. There's more and more places that are um, starting to test these tools, and as they get experience with it, they tend to typically like it. So hopefully we are making progress, and more than anything else, um, we'd love for individuals who are participating um, in, in this program to join us as we sort of move this work forward because there's still a lot of work that remains to be done. All right, that's great. So we may not get to anger and denial. Uh, <laughs> that'll be another show. So the best way to communicate with both of you, um, short of, I don't know if you want to hand out email addresses, but would is there a way on the website? You had mentioned also on the blog people can leave comments. Yeah. yeah. I just I just typed in minimallydisruptivemedicine.org. This is a blog focused on the conversation okay. we just had today, All right. and uh, we, we welcome your comments, and uh, we, we, we look at them, and we respond to them. So we'll be uh, looking forward to uh, collaborating with you. All right. Well, thank you very much. And thank you all for your kudos. I want to really thank my guests, Nilay Shah and Victor Montori, uh, all of you uh, who've been uh, such active uh, participants. At some point, uh, my engineer, uh, our engineer here, Alan, will probably come whizzing in here, since we're sharing everything about the show today, and turn on our goodbye music. But let me just tell you that that next up on WIHI on August 30th, 2012, uh, Conversations as Cornerstones for End-of-Life Wishes. Uh, keep an eye out for the launch of the Conversation Project uh, next week and all the related resources. And on August 30th, here comes Alan, uh, we'll have Ellen Goodman, Larry Weber, and Martha Hayward here to tell you all about the Conversation Project and also being conversation ready. That webpage, by the way, is now live on IHI.org. By tomorrow morning, you'll find an archive version of today's show, um, all kinds of resources that go along with it, the slides, the chat, uh, after uh, Vicki cleans it up a little bit, uh, gets out typos, that kind of thing. And again, if you were not logged in but just listening by phone, please email us at info at IHI.org and we'll send everything to you. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morrison are Northeastern Co-op, Dina Cox. I also have to say that Neela Shah and Victor Montori helped me run the show today, and I can't be more grateful. We do have this fun music that opens and closes the show. The original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Zapasoa on piano. And as I often say, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, you are a great audience today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs>